If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Sorry for interrupting. This is Dave, Content Director on HistoryExtra.com. I just wanted to mention that we've produced an exclusive eight-part podcast series called The Princes in the Tower, A Medieval Murder Mystery. It contains kind of everything you want in a mystery, doesn't it? It's kind of a fairy tale. There's, there's an element of the Brothers Grimm to it. It's the story of a, a downfall of a, of a royal family, the House of York. It's the uh, fall of a, of a young innocent king full of promise it's got potentially gruesome murder it's got you know that kind of heart string pulling element of the fate of children that is the irony you know you needed to be a ruthless man really to be an effective king obviously no the princess in the tower is the great mystery of the medieval age we ran the first episode on our podcast feed on tuesday the 6th of october and you can find the rest of the series on our website at historyextra.com forward slash princes. Now you'll have to register to listen in and registration options may differ by territory. But once you're in, you'll be able to listen ad-free and to access a wealth of other great content about the princes in the tower, medieval and Tudor history and all other aspects of history as well. So do please head over to historyextra.com forward slash princes to check that out. Thanks and I hope you enjoy it.
and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Today's interview is with Andrew Bayliss, who's a senior lecturer in Greek history at the University of Birmingham. Andrew is also the author of a new book on the history of Sparta and has also written the cover feature of our November issue on the Battle of Thermopylae. In today's discussion with our editor Rob Attar, Andrew explores some of the big questions surrounding the Greek city-state and the legends associated with it. So Andrew, I wonder if we, we could start off with a fairly basic question, but whereabouts was Sparta and at what point did it become a leading power in ancient Greece? Okay, so Sparta, obviously, it's in mainland Greece. Uh, It's in the southern part of mainland Greece uh, called the Peloponnese. Uh, And Sparta became genuinely a serious power in the ancient Greek world in the middle of the 6th century BCE. That's the moment where it really started to kick off for Sparta. One thing that I suppose everyone knows about Sparta is that it was a major military power. What do you think made the Spartans such fearsome warriors? For me, it's um, it's a combination of factors, but I think the number one factor is is the training system. Uh, they every single Spartan citizen had to go through the same upbringing, so it wasn't the case that the primary sources make it clear that fathers couldn't raise their children as they wanted; that they had to all go through that system, and that system was not just brutal, it was a system that was designed to make Spartans follow the rules, but also it was was very strong in terms of discipline. So those are the sort of factors that I think the modern military is imposing on people, order, rule following, and just the the likelihood that in combat things are are going to go wrong. So you need people who are going to be able to handle that when things go wrong. Do we know why Sparta decided to create a society like this and to emphasise the military aspect more than other Greek city-states did? We'd like to think we know, but uh, th- th- this, is a, this is one of those huge debates in modern scholarship on Sparta. So the ancient sources paint it as all to do with the helots. Uh, the Spartans conquered the Helots. They then needed to uh, secure control of the Helots. So the idea that's presented in our primary sources is that the Spartans sort of turned themselves into this militarised state to control the Helots. The reality is, is that they probably had been in control of the Helots for the best part of a century before they started behaving in this sort of militarised kind of way. So it doesn't work in terms of chronology. So either there was some sort of crisis that we don't know about or it was something else that made it happen. My my feeling on this is that at some point in time, the Spartans effectively chose uh, to form what you could call a, a we group uh, and that that was them and that everyone else was an outsider and that once they'd done that, they then instituted this training system so that they could trust that everyone was one of them, so to speak. Now, the battle for which Sparta is best known is, of course, Thermopylae in 480 BC. And actually, you've written about that for the latest issue of BBC History magazine. So I wonder if you could briefly describe the key events of that battle and also maybe explain how accurate the legend that we have of it is. 
Okay, so, all right, well, if we've got five hours, I can really go for it. But if we've got a few minutes, I'll stick to the basics. So in the latter part of the 6th century, early part of the 5th century, the, the Greeks came uh, sort of into a position where they were next to be conquered by the Persians as they moved further and further west. They conquered the Greeks of Asia Minor in the uh, in the later part of the 6th century. That had brought them into contact with the Athenians in mainland Greece. Um, and in 481 BCE, Xerxes put together a massive invading force to conquer Greece, as the Greek sources reported. Now, Herodotus says there were two and a half million men in Xerxes' army, but Modern estimates are more like 100,000 to 300,000. And that's why we end up with the story of Thermopylae, because the Greeks needed to repel Xerxes' invasion. And because they were massively outnumbered by Xerxes, the strategy was to try and block his forces where it would be possible to reduce the, uh, the dangers of his numbers. So earlier in 480 BCE, they tried to block his forces in northern Greece, in Thessaly, but they'd been warned by the locals that their position would be too easily surrounded. So the force withdrew, and then they went to plan B, which was to stop him at Thermopylae. So that's how we get to Thermopylae. Um, And I think... Uh, the legendary nature then happens once we actually get to the story of the Greeks trying to stop Xerxes at Thermopylae because when they'd earlier tried to stop him in northern Greece, there had been 10,000 Greeks foot soldiers in the army, but at Thermopylae there's a much smaller number. There's only 300 Spartans plus their helots and maybe some of the perioikoi and around 6,000 or so other Greeks. And the reason their forces were much smaller was because it coincided with the Olympic Games when the Greeks had a truce and the month of Carnea when most of the Peloponnesian Greeks, including the Spartans, had a very strict truce. So they, in theory, no Spartans should have been able to be fighting at Thermopylae because it would have been sacrilegious for them to do so. But So the 300 who went may have been men who were prepared to die because they were actually, they already knew that they were offending the gods by even being there. So that's where some of the legend comes from. It's such a smaller number of men against Xerxes' massive host. Uh, Putting it quickly, they held Xerxes' forces off for two days of solid fighting uh, and then the same problem they had in uh, in northern Greece manifested itself. There was a way their position could be surrounded, and Xerxes was informed of this by a local Greek named Ephialtes. He sent his best troops to circumvent the Greek position. When Leonidas, the Spartan king, learned that this was going to happen, uh, he dismissed most of his troops uh, to uh, to go home safely and he ordered his own men to stay behind so they could basically hold off Xerxes' forces as long as they could so that the uh, the, the, the other troops could withdraw. And the, we always talk about the Spartans, but the Thespians and uh, some men from Thebes also remained behind on the last day and fought with them. So we always remember the 300 Spartans, but actually there were some other guys who sacrificed themselves as well. Uh, and on that last day, they they fought on both fronts, uh, and and no no one was left alive at the end. They they sacrificed themselves to hold Xerxes up long enough that those other men could withdraw, and then ultimately fight on another day and and defeat the Persians.
So that's that's the Mopoli in, in a nutshell. <laughs> so it's, it's a story that lots of people will know, particularly, I suppose, for the film 300. But other than being an incredible story and an incredible instance of bravery, how significant was the Spartan action at Thermopylae? Well, it's a loss. And I always I always tell my students that, and whenever anyone asks me about Thermopylae, is you can't get past that. It is a defeat. And if it was intended to do more than just delay Xerxes for a couple of days, it is actually a disaster because it, it, they didn't hold him up for very long at all. If it was designed to just delay for a little bit and inspire other Greeks, then it would have been significant. And later sources like Diodorus actually say that Thermopylae was more important than the later victories over the Persians because of the inspiration factor, in that uh, such a small number of men had killed tens of thousands of Persians, they had humiliated Xerxes, according to the way it's presented, and that afterwards the Greeks remembered this and they were inspired to fight on more bravely against the Persians. And Diodorus also says that Xerxes and his men remembered it as well, and they'd remembered how scary just 300 Spartans were with their allies, and that this was in the back of their mind when they were fighting against Greeks later on, and they knew that really they were in trouble. So it's significant, but it's not as significant as, say, popular films might make it out to be. And do we know much more about Leonidas beyond the legend of 300 and beyond the battle? Well, Herodotus provides a fair bit of detail about his family, but the reality is he'd only recently become Spartan king. His, he was the um, he was the third son, so there was no there was no great likelihood that he would become king. His his oldest brother had ruled for a long time. There was another brother between them, but he'd essentially got the hump when he didn't get to be king of Sparta, so he asked to be able to form a colony somewhere else and left Sparta altogether. And when Cleomenes died and Dorius was no longer available, Leonidas became king. So there's not an elaborate backstory to his life because he was an unexpected ruler. We know more about his uh, wife, who was also his niece, uh, Gorgo, uh, because uh, there's lots of stories about Gorgo and her relationship with her father, Cleomenes, because Cleomenes conducted affairs of state, according to Rodotus, with an eight or nine-year-old Gorgo in the room with him. Uh, and so there's a wonderful moment where she um, she tells uh, her father what to do when a, a foreigner is trying to bribe him. Uh, eventually she shouts out, Daddy, you should get rid of the foreigner. He's going to corrupt you. And, and her father, the king, says, you're right, and stands up and walks out of the room. So there's lots of stories about Gorgo, and it has been suggested that Gorgo might have been one of Herodotus's sources, that he might have actually met Gorgo when he went to Sparta. So some of the Leonidas information might be coming from Gorgo, but no, we don't know a huge amount about him. It would be good to know more. And a lot of his best lines, like the uh, will dine in Hades, or when Xerxes demanded their arms, he supposedly replied, come and get them. They actually come from much later sources, so they're, they're, they're deemed unreliable. So you know, he's a legendary figure, and there's that lack of reliable source material to, to fill in the gaps. So as you said, Thermopylae, despite the heroism, was actually a defeat. Are there any battles that you would point to as being the most significant Spartan victories? 
I think if I was to pick out one, it would have to be the Battle of Patia the following summer because uh, that is the largest Spartan army you'll ever see in the field. They sent 5,000 Spartan citizens. They had 5,000 of the Perioikoi, who were the people who, free people who lived around them. And according to Herodotus, the suspiciously round number of 35,000 helots, seven for each Spartan citizen, and he says they were armed for war rather than just carrying armour for their masters. So that's a massive Spartan army, and the way Herodotus describes the fighting against the Persians and their Greek allies, because we often forget about that, the northern Greeks actually fought against the Greeks on Xerxes' side the following summer, Herodotus describes it really as the Spartans and the citizens of uh, the nearest city to Jaya in from southern Greece were pretty much fighting against the Persians on their own, and the other Greeks were fighting more against the uh, the, the the Greek allies of Xerxes, and they wipe out um, the the forces led by uh, Xerxes' nephew Mardonius. And so, if there was one victory, that's the one that because that it was the battle that really finally ended. Persian hopes of uh, of conquering Greece, uh, and it ended Xerxes' invasion. So that's that's their big victory. And now moving on to Spartan society, I suppose another thing that Spartans are known for is their tough, austere lifestyle, which in fact gives us the use of the word Spartan today. How far would you say that's accurate, and could you give us any examples of this harshness in practice? Okay, it's not as accurate as we would like it to be, but I can I can give you uh, examples of, of the harshness of their lifestyle. Uh, I mentioned the, the training earlier. Uh, that is described by Plato as uh, a systematic training in the endurance of pain. Uh, and so uh, so Spartan boys were beaten a lot and and I don't mean they were beaten with a cane uh, or the back of a hand. they were they were flogged with whips for when when they did the wrong thing. so uh, and this is a, a very long running, training system starts when they're seven and goes through into early adulthood. So they would have been beaten a lot. Uh, The austerity of their lifestyle is obvious in the fact that they don't circulate gold and silver coinage. And they're not meant to be spending money on on lavish goods. Uh, Although there is a a caveat to that is that there seems to have been a very... um, a complicated game being played in Sparta. There was the appearance of austerity and what actually happened behind closed doors, because our sources make it clear that actually what happened behind the, the behind a Spartan's door was his own business. So they could have actually had a lot a lot of luxury items indoors. It's just no one was actually meant to see it. Uh, they have a communal lifestyle in a sense that each night Spartan citizens are expected to dine with their fellow citizens in in mess groups. So there's not meant to be. Uh, a massive um, sort of private life in the evening. It's uh, it's a much more public private life, for want of a better way of putting it. Um, I'm just trying to think of other aspects of austerity in that they um, there's a uniformity of uh, of appearance as well. They're meant to meant to all have their hair long. They're meant to shave their moustaches at the beginning of each year. Uh, so uh, so they're, they're sort of they're required to follow the rules, and they're even supposed to ask permission to leave Sparta. So uh, so various sources say that men of military age weren't allowed to leave Sparta unless they had permission from the state to do so, which makes it sound like it's quite a 
certainly compared to our society, a closed society in that way. But it's not necessarily as closed or as austere as the primary sources paint it. And there is lots of obvious um, evidence of wealth and luxury that's I, I hesitate even to say hidden. It's it's there, but it's not talked about. So uh, so Spartans were big on horse breeding, and that's an obvious way in which richer Spartans could really uh, spend money uh, because breeding horses is 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 never been a cheap thing. Uh, so and certainly breeding race horses has never been a cheap thing. And Spartans, some Spartans are very very uh, prominent in the record for that. There's a, there's a strong tradition of Spartans winning the four horse chariot race at the Olympic Games, which is the big event and you need to be very very wealthy indeed to produce a team of four quality horses that are going to beat four horses from anywhere else in the greek speaking world so so there's luxury in sparta it's just not luxury in the way that other greeks were doing things uniformly for want of a better way of putting it and a lot of what we've talked about so far relates to spartan men but what do we know about spartan women and their place in a very militarized society we know a lot about Spartan women, which is one of the reasons why Sparta is is such a fascinating topic for me as a researcher, but also for me as a teacher. And that I every year I have students who want to know more about Spartan women, and I almost every year have a, an undergraduate dissertation student who wants to do something on Spartan women because we have so much more source material, relatively speaking. Uh, we have. Uh, preserved 39 or 40 sayings by Spartan women. And there's there's nothing comparable to that, say, from Athenian women. And most of our primary sources actually come from, from Athens. It's because Spartan women were wordy. Uh, and most of their sayings were, when you think about their place in Spartan society, most of their sayings that have been preserved for us are telling men what to do, uh, telling their sons what to do, telling their brothers what to do, uh, telling their husbands what to do, uh, reinforcing Spartan values. Uh, and they were also visible as well. So uh, I said, I've already mentioned about the sort of the training of boys. Spartan girls were trained as well. They, uh, they were required to do athletics. Um, and our primary sources indicate that that was so that they would be big and strong and would therefore grow up to be healthier and therefore able to produce uh, healthier, stronger sons was the the thought process there. And when they were doing exercises, they were visible in a way that uh, wasn't just that they were outside, they were actually scantily clad. So uh, the stereotype of other Greek women is that at the time was that they were they were veiled when they were outside, whereas Spartan girls had short dresses and were known by the Athenians as thigh flashers. Uh, and there's a really strong emphasis on the fact that they had long flowing hair when they were young and outside, and it sort of seemed to be a, a really obvious uh, opposite to uh, to places like Athens, where where women were very very carefully covered and were not expected to be seen outside, and certainly weren't expected to be heard, which is one of the reasons why the story of Gorgo telling her father off when she was eight or nine years old is so striking, because there would be no comparable stories of of an Athenian official uh, being told what to do by his daughter. That just would have been unthinkable. <laughs> Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Uh, I always have to 
warn my students eventually that I don't admire the Spartans beyond a certain level because their society is a horrible one. Yes, they fight on the right side of Thermopylae, but too often they were prepared to trample on the rights of everyone else to get what they wanted. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. So one of the most uncomfortable aspects of Spartan society that I suppose we should discuss is the practice of pederasty, relationships between Spartan men and young boys. What was the importance of this practice to the Spartans and were there any concerns at the time about it? Yeah, pederasty is a common practice in the ancient Greek world and it was clearly a practice while being common that had controversy about it. So uh, it's um, it's something that's debated and discussed in primary sources about Sparta, but also about other parts of the Greek world. So um, it's if you think about what's going on there, the primary sources report this relationship between uh, uh, an adolescent boy and an older man as a form of education. That's what Xenophon, who wrote a constitution of the Spartans, says straight up. He talks about it in the context he uses the word education. But he's a bit vague about what actually happens in that education process. And that tells you already there's something 
that people are uncomfortable about here. Uh, it clearly had a mentoring process. Uh, one of our later sources, Plutarch, says that when a boy was fighting and cried out in an undignified fashion, the Spartan officials punished his older mentor because he hadn't followed the rules properly. So clearly it was about teaching them how to do things, but there was obviously a sense of some sort of sexual um, activity going on in Sparta and elsewhere in the ancient Greek world. Uh, because Xenophon goes out of his way to tell you that it wasn't sexual in Sparta. And he says that it, it, it definitely wasn't sexual. And he stresses it so much that you start to doubt that he might be telling you the truth there. And the obvious counter-argument is Plato, in, when discussing his ideal society, says when it comes to sex, Sparta is not our role model. Uh, and it's so obvious that Plato, who was very uncomfortable with the idea of, uh, of what we would see as pedophilia, was, uh, was not the right thing to do. Uh, but it was actually comparatively normal in the ancient Greek world. Xenophon, when discussing this, says Sparta's not like Elis, also in southern Greece, or Thebes in central Greece, where sex between men and boys was normal. Uh, so uh, there was clearly some parts of Greece where it was more acceptable than in others, and that's why Xenophon's trying to stress that it wasn't sexual there. And actually, in general, how typical or atypical was Sparta of the Greek societies of the time? So, uh, if you read a book published in the 1980s or earlier, it would say totally different. Uh, and in the last 30 years, uh, modern scholarship is, is, is diminishing the gap between Sparta and the rest of the Greek world quite significantly. So many aspects of Spartan society can look very odd when you start off looking at them, but the more uh, sort of dig into there, the deeper you get into the primary sources and the more carefully you ask the questions, the more you can see Sparta is not as abnormal as it's often presented. And it comes down to how you frame your questions in many ways, because so many of the sources for ancient Greece come from Athens. That you get a, It's really easy to compare a place like Sparta to Athens and say, oh, that's different to Athens. Oh, that's different to Athens. Oh, that's different to Athens. Therefore, it's really different. But if you actually start comparing Sparta to other parts of the Peloponnese, central Greek cities uh, and other aspects of different city-states, you then find, well, actually, so many aspects of Spartan society aren't near as different as you think they might be. And one of the obvious ones is, is politics. Athens is a democracy. Sparta is an oligarchy with two kings. Clearly, it's very, very different. But there were loads of oligarchies in the ancient Greek world. Athens was not was not the norm. Uh, when Athens developed into a democracy to begin with, it was the exception. Uh, so, so it, it comes down to your frame of reference. So, if you asked me on a, on a sliding scale, uh, I'd say Sparta was quite different, but not near as different as it's often been portrayed. And then, on a related note, what kind of relations did Sparta have with the other Greek city states? It depended who they were. So, uh, so Sparta was the head of an alliance system which incorporated most of the Peloponnese, uh, which is often referred to in uh, in modern uh, writings as the Peloponnesian League, but has also been referred to as the Spartan Alliance, which is a term I actually prefer because it reflects the fact that all of those city-states were allied to Sparta. So Sparta had good relations with most of the Peloponnesian states for most of the period between the middle of the 6th century through to the uh, sort of 
early fourth century, uh, but they frequently had very hostile relations with, with Athens. Uh, an exception to that rule was during the during the Persian invasions when they basically agreed to fight together against the Persians. Uh, so it depended in many ways on how far away they, you were from Sparta. If you were close, you were under their thumb but kind of had a good relationship with them. The further away you were, the more likely they were to not be interested in what you were doing until they felt that you were a threat, which Athens always was throughout the classical period. So Sparta has normal in diplomatic relations with other Greek city-states. Uh, they they send ambassadors like other Greek city-states do. They receive ambassadors like other Greek city-states do. They compete at the big international games like other Greek city-states do. They're not closed off in a... They won't play with the other Greeks, but they can be... They can be uh, quite blunt when they are hostile, and their their communication style doesn't go down very well outside of outside of Sparta as well. They have a reputation for a, a brevity of speech, which isn't just them speaking briefly themselves. It's in expecting that others will speak briefly as well. So there's a series of Spartan sayings where they're quite rude to ambassadors from other Greek city states for talking too long. Uh, I always joke and say the Spartans would have hated me because I don't shut up, uh, and they, they and they would have wanted me to shut up. So, so they they could be very rude when they wanted to be. When we were talking about Thermopylae, you discussed the role of the helots. I'd be interested to know how they fitted into Spartan society. Okay, so helots are absolutely fundamental to Spartan society. Uh, put it putting it bluntly, the Spartan lifestyle could not happen without the helots because. Spartans couldn't devote themselves to uh, physical exercise. They couldn't have a culture where they weren't expected to have a job if they didn't have the slaves to do the work for them. So uh, they they are the fundamental basis of Spartan society. They've been referred to by uh, one modern scholar as the alimentary canal of Spartan society. Uh, I referred to the Spartans as being like parasites uh, living off the labour of the helots. Uh, so they are fundamental. Uh, they also massively outnumber their masters. So modern estimates are 75 5,000 to, say, 115,000, 120,000 helots labouring for 6,000, 7,000, 8,000 Spartan masters. So they are potentially a massive threat to their Spartan masters as well. So, uh, so that's where the idea comes up that the Spartans sort of turned inwards to monitor themselves and and their helot population rather than outwards in a in a conquering kind of way. So the Spartans can't do without them, but they also seem to be scared of them. So uh, one of the potential reasons for the reputation the Spartans developed for being cautious about uh, going on overseas campaigns is because they might have been worried about to having leaving their helots behind. Uh, and the idea that they took 35,000 helots to the Battle of Plataea, uh, that could well have been almost or sort of three quarters of the adult male population of helots. So it might have almost been a case that they took them with them to fight with them, but also so they didn't leave them behind uh, to cause trouble. And it's the reason I always want to talk about helots when I'm talking about Sparta is because they are the people who are so frequently left out of the popular culture versions of Sparta too. And the, and the worshippers of Sparta 
in a benign sense, tend to overlook them. And the more dodgy admirers of Sparta are a little probably too keen on the helots as well. So there was a uh, a quite blunt uh, policy document produced in the 1940s in, in Nazi Germany that said the, the Germans would have the status of the Spartan citizens. Uh, the... Um, some of the East, Eastern Europeans would have the status of the perioikoi and the Russians would be the helots. Uh, and and it, you can see where they were going with that one there. Uh, so um, so you can't sort of overlook the helots much as people often try to. And considering, as you mentioned, they had this superiority in numbers, did the helots ever try and rebel or overthrow their masters? They did. There are two well-known rebellions by the Messenian population. One of them was in the middle of the 7th century, uh, and it's the context of one of the rare Spartan sources we have. is war poetry written by a man named Tateus, and it's all about inspiring the Spartans to fight bravely. Uh, and this was to fight bravely against the helots who were rebelling against them. And in the middle of the 5th century, 460s, uh, 465 through to four. Five, five, there was a massive rebellion by the Helots after a big earthquake struck Sparta. So uh, they, they could rise up on occasions, which would explain some of the more ugly um, uh, sources we have for Sparta that talk about the treatment of the Helots. Uh, and, and one of the most brutal uh, Spartan practices is the so-called Cryptaea. Uh, which is sort of, you could translate as the secret thing, or sometimes it gets translated as the secret service. And and the worst version of that in our primary sources says young Spartan men were given a knife uh, and supplies and they were dispatched out into the countryside and their job was to roam around at night and kill any helot who was out and about. And on other occasions, they would go through the fields during the daytime and they'd pick out the biggest, uh, most threatening looking helot and kill him. Uh, so it was a, a brutal rite of passage for young men, but it was also a way of terrorising the helots. And uh, and you could characterise the Spartan treatment of helots as an example of state terror uh, because of how, how institutionalised it was. Taking the story on a little bit, what would you see as the end point of the Spartan heyday and how did that come about? All right. I end, well, essentially the book that I wrote, I said it was it was sort of looking at the period up until 370 or thereabouts. And when I teach about Sparta, I end at 370. And that uh, coincides with two great events. One of them is the Battle of Leuctra in 371, where the Spartans are defeated by the Thebans. And that's that's the moment when any aura or mystique that the Spartan army had is gone because of the manner of that defeat. It's a disastrous defeat. Uh, they literally run away in battle. Uh, the next day, the Spartan king, Agesilaus, has to suspend the laws about cowards because he would have basically had to make almost the entire Spartan citizen population cowards uh, because they'd run away in battle. And the following summer, the Thebans swept into the Peloponnese and they freed uh, the Messenians from Spartan rule. And that basically, it, it halved the size of the Spartan state and it took away a huge chunk of their slave population and it basically ended Spartan power. Uh, so that's that's the point I choose. How that happened is not just military defeat, it's a steep decline in numbers of Spartan citizens, which commenced in the 5th century and rapidly accelerated up until that point in time. So at the time of the Battle of Thermopylae, Herodotus says there were 8,000 Spartan citizens. There might have been a bit fewer than that. 
but by the time you get to the Battle of Lutra, there's only 1,500. Uh, so, so that loss of citizen numbers more than anything else is, is, is responsible for the decline of Sparta. Aristotle says Sparta perished due to, a, due to small numbers of men. Uh, and and, and it's, it's quite obvious that that is the most significant factor. Why that came about is a more complicated question, but, but the sheer number of Spartans just dropped so dramatically that they were not able to, to be the military threat they had once been. And then taking the story on to more recent times, I'm quite interested in your thoughts on the legacy of Sparta and how it's been co-opted by such a broad range of groups ranging from sports teams to Nazi Germany. Why does Sparta mean so many different things to so many different people? I think because it, it's because there's so many levels to the story of the Spartans. And, and I think in terms of sports teams calling themselves the Spartans and just playing films about the Battle of Thermopylae, it's a fantastic story. 300 men sacrifice themselves for the freedom of others. It's such a, a powerful story. Then the society that produced that, that, that has such a strong emphasis on obedience and teamwork and all of that, it works so well for sport uh, that it's, it, it just makes perfect sense to do that. And I think it's a story that also appeals to, to young men as well in that way. I mean, I first read about the Spartans when I was 12 years old and I was just awestruck by these guys and I didn't see any of the negatives uh, and, and, and just sort of overlooked that. So I think if you're prepared to overlook the negatives, you've just got this wonderful sort of role model for uh, for for sporting prowess uh when it comes to the dark side of sparta i think there's so much going on there that appeals to anyone with an authoritarian view so spartan eugenic practices were something that appealed to hitler uh, and then you combine that with that uh, military prowess then it's working quite quite nicely as as a role model in that way uh, for other other societies that have admired Sparta, it's different things. So, for in the Soviet era, Sparta looked like a proto-communist society where they had divided up the land allegedly into equal plots, uh, and everyone was equal. Yet they were all citizens who were prepared to uh, defend Spartan territory, and that was a model that appealed to people within the Soviet Union as well as in a. And part of that came also from. The identification of the West with the uh, with the Athenians, a an imperialistic maritime power. You can see where where people, where scholars in America and in Britain could identify with Athens as a democratic state with a massive fleet, uh, whereas Sparta was this sort of backward seeming land based economy, which could easily be uh, be identified with the Soviet uh, Union as well. So so it, it depends on the perspective that people are coming from. Uh, I always have to warn my students eventually that I don't admire the Spartans beyond a certain level because their society is a horrible one. Uh, and yes, they fight on the right side of Thermopylae, but too often they were prepared to trample on the rights of everyone else to get what they wanted. So it's not a, I don't have a boy crush on the Spartans by any means. Uh, they're a fascinating society, but they're a they're an ugly society once you start to dig in into the into what's really going on there. And if one was to visit ancient Greece now and looking for traces of Spartan society, how much is there to see? 
It's uh, it's I I love the site and the the modern town of Sparty, uh, but it's not the best preserved ancient Greek city by any means, which uh, which is quite. Um, Quite interesting when you think about the fact that uh, Thucydides, writing towards the end of the fifth century, said that in future years, if only the foundations of the two cities survived, no one would ever believe that Sparta was as powerful as it was, and everyone would think that Athens was twice as powerful as it was. And he was right, uh, because when you go to Athens, you see the Parthenon, you see the Acropolis, you see all these temples everywhere, and you just think, wow, this city-state was amazing. You go to Sparta, and the remains are very meagre, and and the, the foundations of the temples are remarkably small compared to Athens. So Sparta, Sparta was not a uh, dramatic urban landscape. Sparta was really a collection of villages that got lumped together to form a to form a, an urban center. Uh, but it wasn't. It, architecture wasn't their thing. Art wasn't their thing. So, so you don't see uh, an amazing set of um, well-preserved buildings. It's bits of bits of masonry here and there. Now, the the the, the site at Sparty, they've done wonders with what they have, uh, but there's a limit there. And when you go to the, I love the Sparty Museum. It's got some wonderful Spartan artifacts there. But again, this uh, the idea that the Spartans didn't do manual labor. And that the perioikoi and the helots did the manual labour means that uh, from the period that you want to know about, when the period of Sparta's greatness, there isn't a huge amount of artefacts there. But when you go around various museums around Greece, you do see other bits of things that relate to Sparta. And probably my my two favourites are the Spartan shield that you can see in the Agora Museum in Athens, which was taken from Spartans who surrendered on the island of uh, Sphacteria, the sort of so-called Battle of Pylos in 425 BCE, the Athenians captured Spartans and they dedicated their shields to the gods. And this shield has inscribed on it, taken from the Spartans at Pylos. And the Athenians were so proud of the fact that the Spartans had surrendered to them. And my other favourite Sparta-related artefacts are the arrowheads that they found at the Battle of Thermopylae that you can see in the National Archaeological Museum in Athens. So if you know where to go, you can find bits of things relating to Sparta all throughout Greece. That was Andrew Bayliss. His book, which is simply called The Spartans, is out now published by Oxford University Press. And as I mentioned, His article on the Battle of Thermopylae is the cover feature in the November issue of BBC History magazine. That's on sale now and also includes articles on medieval science, the world's first policewomen, the Franco-Prussian War and a whole lot more. Look out for it in all good retailers now. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Join us tomorrow for another lecture from our 2019 History Weekend events. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.